0: To help you improve your mindset your leadership and your team performance to me our mindset is the next frontier so let's find out why hello how are you welcome back to the show and apologies for missing the micro lesson episode last week i was flat out delivering keynotes and webinars for clients and dashing all over It's been great fun, though, because we've had topics like coaching skills, leading change and high-performing teams to dig into, and lots of brilliant debates, learning to apply those in financial services, automotive, technology. So a real test and, and really fascinating to see how our clients can use some of the insights from our digital library and our research. I hope you're safe and well, and that your work is proving both fun and challenging. It's a really interesting time at the moment with so many points of uncertainty and turbulence. And I think our community in this podcast knows the importance of investing time and effort into our mindset and well-being as the antidote to the stress and the disruption that's going on outside. It gives me personal pleasure to be able to support people that are trying to make a difference. They're trying their best in the face of this headwind. And I think we can all lack a little bit of clarity and courage sometimes. So I know that our content is helping so many people around the world, whether it's in webinar format or keynotes or through our digital library. So it's brilliant. And and if you do have any topics that you're really interested in, then drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com. And I'd love to help to research it and to package some content up for you to use with your team. Thanks so much as well to everyone that's been sharing the show and and sharing my LinkedIn posts and social media posts with our content. I really see every one of them and I really appreciate your support. So today's Mastermind episode is taken from one of the Sporting Edge Members Club events about a month or so ago. This is where our members come together from all around the world as I interview one of the thought leaders or individuals with a special story live in front of the group. I try and match the guests each month to the prevailing mood and I think this one does just that. It's with Detective Chief Inspector Ash Farrington who's had a stellar career in the British police force. We cover the highs and lows of his personal journey and he shares strategies for negotiation and thinking clearly under pressure and also managing his own teams in these volatile public order situations that sound so dangerous to me. There's also a remarkable personal message about his battle with clinical depression and how he's emerged a more self-aware and stronger person. I'm originally from Staffordshire where Ash was the police chief. And I met him a few years back when he asked me to share some of our research and insights with his own team. You'll hear this curiosity and hunger to learn has been a key part of his success throughout his career. But for someone who's made it to the top, he's incredibly humble and softly spoken, but I think you'll hear in this episode that his insights will rumble away like distant thunder because they're so powerful and truly profound. So take a front row seat as we dive into the heart of the interview when I ask Ash about his motivations for joining the police.
1: I'd always wanted, and and, and this always sounds a bit of a cliche, Jeremy, but I got a, a real sense that I wanted to help people um a real sense that i wanted to connect with with people and make a difference but i was really unsure of of kind of how i was going to do that um, but the police seemed to be one of those locations that I, I, I could really you know experience the full spectrum of 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 kind of involvement with with people in the public I was completely um, completely different to all the stereotypes. And, and the, on the intro, Jeremy, you, you were spot on. Um, I was greener than a, a tin of peas. I'd been brought up in a, a farming family in, uh, in rural Staffordshire. But very naive, I think. But very empathetic. Very um, kind of what we'd call now... A softer skills. I, I, I'd, I'd really sort of, um, you know, because of my family setup, you know, um, I I'd, I'd got a lot of em- empathetic skills, and it was very interesting that I joined that service thirty years ago. Uh, but that that empathy, those softer skills, yeah, there, there's been a real journey of of how that settled in because I was probably the complete opposite to all of the stereotypes certainly 30 years ago
0: and and how do you think that if we sort of fast forward i'm sure we'll get lots of stories from your um you know work but how do you, how do you think it's changed policing and, and the environment for policing over the 30 years obviously um, different social uh, situations and and uh, technology but what have you seen through those periods
1: yeah i think i think the, the, the biggest thing jeremy is the way that we live our lives online digitally you know back 30 years ago having a mobile phone was kind of quite unusual you know but but we all live on our phones now um policing represents society and and society kind of reflects policing um back then i think we were coming out of a lot of the isms issues with sexism racism um kind of understanding around um, kind of what it was to be uh, gay, les- you know, lesbian or transgender. But over the last 30 years, those themes of how we've matured as a society, actually, if I think if we're quite honest, we should be quite proud of how far we've come, um, you know, around so many key themes and how we're living with such sophisticated technology that in one way, I think seems seems to have made us so connected with with each other. But I don't know about what you feel in, in the group today, but, but also it's probably made us really lonely. And that and that was another thing that I've seen that, yeah, we're, we're really connected, but there's massive parts of our community that are really lonely. And also, I think there's a loneliness that perhaps in all of us is, as we kind of um, I don't know get our, get, get our heads around the, you know, all the ways that we're connected. But that was something that loneliness, certainly in my last job, when I was responsible for adult safeguarding for Staffordshire, was 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 one of those themes.
0: Yeah, I mean, interestingly, Rahaf Harfush, is one of the experts that we interviewed. She's a, a digital anthropologist and, and she speaks a lot about the, the sort of interface between technology and society. And almost you can imagine 30, 40 years ago, these local communities that were largely, you know, human relationships. You know, you'd, you'd know a lot less people, but you'd have much deeper and closer relationships with them, contrasted to this almost global but shallow relationships that we've all got, you know, with online, we're trying to take in, it's like drinking from a fire hose, you know, the amount of information that's coming in. So you can't possibly keep up. So you try and work harder and harder to keep up with it. And it's just unsustainable. So I think there's very different pressures that technology's brought to us. And, and obviously that brings out its awareness of some of these big societal issues that you were saying, but also it's pressure and isolation for individuals to face, but, um, if if we go to to your career and think you know you gave us a picture of starting out, were you an ambitious person to get to the very top that you did, or, or did these roles get presented to you along the way?
1: Yeah, yeah, far from it. Um, I, I joined the police um, to be a police constable, but I think the driver uh, for me that that perhaps pushed me through those ranks you know, finishing as a detective chief inspector was some of the really poor leadership, poor management, poor treatment of, of, of other people. And and I remember talking to somebody one day and and they said, Oh, what why why aren't you going to be a sergeant? And I said, well, you know, um and, and that person said, Well if if you if you don't 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 ever grumble about about other people because you have to put yourself forward, and and I and I think probably probably this is shared with so many on 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 this chat today that I think sometimes when you see bad leadership, that becomes a very kind of um, good focus to say, well, if you don't like that, put yourself in that position. And I've always been very, I think perhaps shy, and, and that's the, and that's kind of perhaps sometimes hard to for people to believe, you know, as a public order commander, as a, as a homicide senior investigating officer, but I was always shy. I always struggled and still do with confidence. But if you don't put yourself forward, because it was never having power over people, Jeremy, it was, it was having the great privilege of influence of making the environment better. Um, treating people really really well getting those connections and bringing teams together that that actually you know drove me to think well you've, you've got to put yourself forward
0: so so you think perhaps some of those leadership characteristics that you missed when you were coming through the ranks you tried to emulate and almost dial up as your signature style as you got into leadership positions
1: yeah, because back back thirty years ago, the, the style was very much command and control. You were told what to do, and and that was it. So, um, but but I was puzzled by that because policing by by its nature is really complicated. You know, one minute you can be looking for somebody that's 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 missing, disappeared. or or, or the next minute you can be dealing with a a large-scale public order confrontation so you you have to think and 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 also how you treat people and if and if you're going to treat people really well you can't be a robot there's loads of salty in in any relationship any connection with with people so I started to see it as a kind of uh, of, of a really strange thing that this command and control and and in the police, certainly back then it was a lot of, well, we're gonna take command and control. And it was a bit like, um, you know, sort of uh, that heroic leadership model. But I thought, well, well, that stops people thinking. And actually the best people I worked with and the best things that I saw were, were where people thought. And you you use those soft nuances of how you treated really different people so that you didn't create tensions, that you didn't create violence, that you didn't have to resort to violence to sort things out. Um, And and that became a kind of real theme through my career that actually don't take control, give it, give control. And if you're, you know, if if you're satisfied that people know what they're doing and and they're safe in what they're doing, really, there are few occasions that you need to take control as a leader. Actually, if you give people authority to make decisions because they, you know, people know generally what what the right decisions are and also add to that. Give people confidence. Because another thing that I often saw was that leaders that by being clumsy or or, or kind of damn right horrible would strip people of their confidence. And again, you know, as I said to everybody at the beginning, not having a great deal of confidence myself, I, I was always puzzled. Why would you want to take somebody's confidence from them? Let's give people confidence. You know, and I was really lucky, Jeremy, because... You Know one, one of the big, the big kind of learning uh moments for me was as a hostage negotiator. Um, I was a, a nationally trained negotiator. Um, I, I had the good fortune through that national training to also, you know, sort of experience lots of sort of people from different backgrounds through that training. Um, you know, my training also included, you know, kind of Aircraft hijacking, but what I'd say to everybody the, the the big the big thing for me, and I was I was a hostage negotiator for five years, was that you know often people would say, "Oh gosh, you know, it, it must be about the talking," but it was always about the listening. And and what I realized, and, and hopefully as a takeaway for for everybody today, was that listening was the key thing. And what I learned personally over those five years, was that everybody was a bit like a record. There was the lyrics and there was the background music of people. And what I learned was that when the lyrics didn't kind of match the background music, to be at least very curious or to start getting worried. And and a lot of the work I did wasn't siege uh, negotiation it was trying to persuade people not to take their own lives and it was an utter privilege to be in that situation where most of the time um, I was able to persuade people that you know today is not a good day to take your life let's let's rethink this Um, but to get there you you really had to connect with people and you had to connect with their hearts really quickly. And what 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 do I mean by that? Well, we often connect kind of mind to mind, but there's also another level that you know we can perhaps explore is how do you connect with a with the heart of another person? Because there's in my mind two levels of connection mind and heart. And if you could quickly connect with a person's heart, but human beings, by the way, Jeremy, can smell insincerity at a thousand yards. So you have to be completely genuine. You have to open your heart to allow the connection with someone else. Occasionally, that would be with some pretty unpleasant people. You know, I remember a guy that said, you know, I'm not going to give myself up, and I'm going to blow the house up, and um, and, and you've got to get to a point where you, you're saying to that person, "I care about you," and be really genuine in that. And of course, after three hours of me, you know, chatting to him, he gave himself up. Perhaps an hour of me chatting to all of you, you might be thinking, "Blimey, yeah, I give up." <laughs> but but that was, yeah, that connection. That that listening um, and the difference between uh, the lyric and the background music of people, Jeremy, was really interesting. That I think is a real big takeaway in all leadership situations, and also the ability to connect with other people really well. And I think that comes from listening, actually.
0: Yeah, and it, <clears throat> often we don't have time, do we? And I guess you know one of the, one of the um, you know excuses, I guess, for that style of leadership, not taking the time is that things are just so busy. Whereas I guess in that situation, you it's sort of you and that person. You, the only thing you've got is that connection. And no matter how long it takes, you've got to try and establish that authentically and step by step. I remember when we were together uh, in Staffordshire, hearing some of your team talk about things I've never really considered in that situation where the uniform that you're wearing, maybe the stripes that you've got on your shoulder might influence the person as to whether they think they've got the most senior person there working with them or has a junior person been sent out? And I never really thought about that, but what are the skills did you learn about those very tense situations that that perhaps could apply across into business or, or leadership more generally?
1: Yeah, I think, I think the tense of the situation... Um, the more important was the kind of psychological safety within the whole team. Um, and what I mean by that was that I'd often be the leader or the most senior person in that in that situation. So it wasn't about abdicating that responsibility. But what I found was where we got really good, safe connections with each other, that together we were able to feed off each other's emotions, connections and support and deal with some really, really um, sad or tragic or, um, or even some violent confrontational situations. Um, so, so two examples of of, of that, Jeremy. Um, one of my roles as a senior investigating officer would be to investigate the death of children, and without going too much into into that, um, the trauma of that, obviously for the parents and families, was 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 was, was acute, was, was 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 terrible, but the people that were investigating that death, as well as the paediatricians and and the wider uh, group of people around that, it was equally traumatic. Um, Yes, my, my job was to understand had that person met their death unlawfully. So there was always that consideration. But then wider than that was around how as a team could we investigate this in a way that that showed true humanity to the parents, but also showed empathy and understanding to the professional people around that also needed that empathy and understanding. And, and, And I found that taking a breath, taking a step back, creating a feeling of safety and of team, and of course that that sometimes had to happen really quickly because I wouldn't know the paediatrician that was that was on duty in the hospital. But very quickly, creating that connection and relationship that helped in in dealing with acute trauma, just in the same ways you can imagine being on one of them. Uh, Kind of riot vans. You're hearing over the radio. There's there's a serious violent confrontation. I remember going to one job, but we, we we were hearing over the radio that they'd set fire to a house, and there was a huge crowd. and And on that on that carrier, we were thinking, Are people going to burn to death? What, what's happening? Or we'd hear we'd hear our colleagues kind of screaming for assistance. And in and, and in that carrier, the, the, the tension well, the first thing everybody would go quiet. And again, as a leader in that, what, what what you had to do was you had to bring people into the moment in a calm and um kind of kind of safe way that we 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 together. As a team, we're going to deal with a situation, and I, I'd learn, and, and I, probably the negotiation experience was sometimes, and it's a bit, probably, um, you know, maybe a cliche, but you know, when you are in are in lots of pressure, talk low and slow. Try and slow everything down. Because the worst thing you can do as the leader is panic people. And I'd seen panic and, and trying just to calm everybody down to say, right, okay, this is what we've got. If it was a confrontation or a violent situation or a traumatic situation around bringing people. And this this comes back as well to this connection. And, you know, and and it, good point what you said, um, often people find they are just simply too busy to create that connection. What I'd say to everybody is connection is the most powerful thing you will ever create with with another human being. And if you see it through that lens, how could how could we be too busy to do the most important thing that matters to human beings and that is to create a true connection. That's difficult, Jeremy, particularly when there's lots going on and under, when you're under pressure. But one of the things that perhaps was was my signature um, leadership style within Staffordshire Police was that, you know, people would always say, Ash Farrington always makes time. And, and I felt that was my duty, my responsibility as a leader, always make time. Always make time to connect with everyone. Go and find out, you know, and and one of the last things that I did was, um, as a public order, bronze commander for a football match at Stoke City. Um, I don't know how many thousands of people. It's It's a championship side now. It used to be in the premiership. But make time to know and understand everybody that's part of that operation. Um, You know, as a chief inspector, Jeremy, I was never too big, never too grand, because really, who was I? You know, and that's the other thing of rank and all the rest of it. I I was only ever responsible. I was no better than anyone else. In fact, I had more responsibility, more accountability as a leader. So it was really important that you... Act that, live that, not just talk about it. Um, but it's a great, yeah, it's a great, great thought of that, how we can be so busy to create the connection.
0: Yeah, and and I guess that point about connection, <clears throat> and it's quite profound, isn't it, that you sort of think that we're skimming around the place, trying to speak to loads of people and having these really shallow relationships. And actually, every time we touch those people, we have to work really hard to influence them or make that connection again whereas what you're saying is if you make the time to invest and connect with people and get your team to connect at that level then actually everything's quite instinctive because you almost create that shared mental model of what's going on and you know where to go because the relationship is there in place rather than having to start from scratch every time which actually takes takes all all the time and effort but I'm I'm interested. Are there any other strategies that you've learnt in those high stress situations about either keeping yourself calm or your team calm when fear is is quite high?
1: Yeah, fear. Um fear is a constant companion um in 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 in, in any walk of life. You know, as you know, Jeremy, unfortunately, we we've got a part of our brain that can't distinguish um, the pressure and fear of a a boardroom meeting, or are we going to be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger? It's a part of our brain that just hasn't evolved. Yeah, we've got a more human, logical part of our brain, um, but that was helpful. And also through coaching a lot of my colleagues to, to help them understand that, in fear you're using part of your brain that controls that flight fight freeze but actually we want to be in a different part but you will always have that fear but let's um let's try and you know and sort of get over that um and and really through coaching people through through that kind of that fear and understanding of how do our brains work. The other point as well, Jeremy, I think again, and, 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 and I know where you're coming from with that point of how do you bring a team together to almost, rather than have an individual in flow, have a team in flow. And I know that that's of, of interest at the, at the minute over a lot of people, but I think getting a team in flow again is through that real connection. The other point as well is is, is being prepared to be vulnerable. And one of the things that um, I was perhaps unusual in the police around was an ability to be completely honest around being vulnerable. So at 17 years service, having been a negotiator and done all the lots of other things, at 17 years service, I I had a a mental breakdown. Um, I suspect that was through... I think we're probably all sponges, the, the sponge of being able to absorb trauma, tragedy. I also had worked with somebody that had really not my confidence. So that was part of that cocktail. And I, I got clinical depression, had a, a full mental breakdown, and I had to relearn. Uh, you know, for three months I was a, a crying um emotional mess and of course as an inspector um of course you know detective inspectors inspectors don't have mental breakdowns do they um you know cops they're tough uh, but that's that's a load of nonsense and 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 i lived through the pain of 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 a full mental breakdown i went to a place where broken police officers went in two thousand and nine when 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 I had the breakdown, what thirteen years ago, Jeremy, we we weren't as at, at a mature stage of what mental health is was. In fact, I remember that people like me didn't say what was wrong with them because it was embarrassing. Um, and and that that was a that was a really low moment. I, I was broken. Interestingly, interestingly at, the, at the place for broken cops, a lot of the broken people were women. Now, the learning of that was that those women weren't weaker. They, they were stronger because what I learned about myself and what I learned about those, those, those women in particular was that mental burnout hap- happens when you don't give up that you don't give in but eventually a part of your brain burns out burns out as a, you know you can tell I'm not a um, a kind of a, a neuro a neurosurgeon but but the way I learned it was that there's a wiring loom that if you can't stop thinking and if you can't stop trying to work stuff out it will burn out and I'd obviously got to a point at 17 years service i think it was a bit obsessional i never had a day off sick. I was obsessional about being perfect. I was obsessional about doing things really well for other people. An analogy that I learned was that it was a, working with trauma was a bit like working in the asbestos factory, that you work better with asbestos if you didn't wear a mask. And what I mean by that is, that I cared better about people and the trauma that they were suffering without wearing any kind of mask or protection. After 17 years, I got asbestosis. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't cope with any more trauma tragedy. Um, but there was huge learning in, in all of that. And, you know, and this is the the great opportunity you've given is that you can rebuild yourself um, and, I, and I think that the learning that I had was that that obsessional perfectionism w- was was not good. Um, a lack of confidence was certainly a contributing factor, and and you have to be careful who you work around because if if you're working around people that are going to not that confidence, that that will make you unwell if if that's the way that you're wired up. But also. I think I learned that you can live in your fears and thoughts and actually there is an ability that you can realise and step back about what, what are your thoughts. And, of course, thoughts you can't stop. But how you react to them at an emotional level and at a practical level of what you do you have an ability to eventually take some step backs, witness the thought, but make the decision of how you're going to act on those thoughts. That doesn't mean that you're never going to be frightened. In fact, fear is something that all of us, to a degree, it, it's a constant companion, but there is there is certainly a way, Jeremy, to be able to, walk the road of your life with that companion in in it and have a different relationship with that fear so that it doesn't stop you being who you could be. Because the danger, I think, for me, would have been really easy to have said no to so many things. I I made you laugh, didn't I, when we just met before this, that I've just done a Strictly Come Dancing, a charity competition for Birmingham Children's Hospital, when I was asked would I do it, the auto uh, the auto reply was no, but step back, no, 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 yeah, of course we can do that. Don't let fear stop you being who you could be, having the exhilaration, the relationships and connections with human beings uh, of what you could be.
0: <laughs> so, did you get into the grand final?
1: <clears throat> um, out of eight couples, Jeremy, I I I, 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 I was honourably placed eighth. So, so you know, but wow, what, what a group of people! What a charity that you know, but f- the, the, this charity, the Magic of Millie, and they've raised nearly one hundred eighty thousand pounds for Birmingham Children's Hospital. And again, to be part of that kind of thing, but generally, it has been so easy to have said, "Oh my God, no!" I, you know, I, I'd be scared stiff. I was scared stiff. Yeah, but, but the bridge of fear it takes you up to a place called exhilaration.
0: <laughs> well, it's great. You know, you've said you're low on confidence, but to dance in front of 600 people, I think that's incredible. And thanks so much for sharing that story. Uh, I wasn't expecting that. And I think, you know, you, that idea that you learned through therapy and, and support that what's going in our, on our brain, you know, our, our thoughts aren't the truth uh they're just an interpretation of the world that's trying to keep us safe or the voice of a parent or a teacher that criticized us when we're young it's the echo of that and actually i don't think we spend enough time thinking about our thinking we just assume that that's the truth and then we cascade into those emotions and those behaviors that come from that signal whereas somebody said to me once that you know our thoughts are like um taxis going past you know that. You can see the red one, the blue one, the green one going past and the thoughts are drifting past. We do not have to jump into that car and follow it to its end destination. We can actually just observe the thoughts coming into our mind and choose which car we get into. And I thought that was a really nice point because we feel so engulfed with our thoughts sometimes. And that creates that spiral of emotion and and hijack almost that that you sort of get carried away and and do things in the moment and i think that ability to put a a fire break between the stimulus that's making us feel feel fearful or or angry or whatever and the response that we put in that's a critical you know pause and period but we just don't we just don't see it like that we just follow those instincts very quickly don't we
1: And, and the worst thing i did was that i think i spent um a considerable period, Jeremy, trying to stop my thoughts. Right. Because I thought, well, I'm 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 in control of my brain. I'm gonna stop those thoughts. Well, forget about that. You can't. You know, those thoughts are being generated by a part of our brain that even now we we struggle to understand what you are absolutely spot on about though jeremy they are created in the brain that wants to protect us it's the part of the brain that controls running away freezing or fighting um, but the problem is it's sending those messages to a part of our brain that's much more logical and thoughtful. And the big learning I had is firstly, stop fighting your thoughts. Don't fight them. You can't stop them. Um, you've got to let them go. And like you've said, you've got to then choose which of those thoughts are useful and which of those other thoughts are taxes. It's a good analogy, Jeremy just don't get in them. You don't need to get into that taxi. You know, I I always used to look at some people, some leaders and think, I bet their thoughts in their minds are saying, you are brilliant, you're going to do fantastically well, you will succeed. When my brain was saying, uh, you're an imposter, you're a fraud, you're no good, you're going to fail. Uh, you're hopeless. You're in an embarrassment, and certainly that period when I had uh, clinical depression. Of course, there was some evidence that I'd failed, that I had let so many people down. That there, there was some real traction. That took some years to actually um, get over that. But you're not your thoughts. You're not. You you are a witness to those thoughts. And I think when you learn through that, life takes on a very different kind of um, uh, concept where you're far more in control, particularly of the fear, particularly of those decisions that you you, you know are good decisions that are going to perhaps help you grow, put you into a situation that you're not going to be comfortable with but automatically you say no, no, yet that's a a chance less to grow, a chance less to perhaps connect with other people, learn from other people. So, yeah, I think that's a really important lesson.
0: Great. Well, let's open the line up to some, um, if anyone wants to put the cameras on uh, and we'll take some questions from the group, that would be fantastic. That's been so interesting, Ash. I mean, we could talk about fear and anxiety and imposter syndrome all day, and I think ultimately, you know, our brain is primed for uh, safety, as you say, and and those sort of flags of failure or mistakes get get sort of uh, highlighted. And and what we've got to do with our gratitude uh, logs and uh, and our sort of um, celebrating the successes that we've had, we've got to dial that up even more because those are the things that we need to drown out that negative voice a lot of the time. But often we just listen to it. So let's, uh, let's see what everyone's got in terms of questions. Does anyone want to type into the chat function um, any questions? So I'll just ask you one about uh, your next step is going to be coaching. Uh, you've done your qualifications and that's a great passion of yours. What, what is it that you think is drawing you to coaching for the next stage of your career?
1: I, th- I think it's purpose. Purpose. You know, I've 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 just had 30 years of, of an amazing purpose. Um, but I don't want to give up on that, um, Jeremy. And I want to still help people. Um, and certainly if I can stop people making the mistakes that that I've made in my life. I remember a very, very dark hour in the grip of clinical depression that I vowed then that if I could get better that I would put myself at the service of other people to help them. Firstly, not get to that deep black hole of depression. Um, And if I could prevent it in people, that was the best scenario. But if I could help people, then that's what I would want to do. I've set up a a small consultancy called Farrington and Kind. And when I say small, Jeremy, it's uh, me, myself and I. Um, but that, that that kind of ability to reach out and try and help people is, is very much that next move.
0: Well, I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people uh, on the call today and, and listening when we turn this into a podcast episode. Um, what other things interest you in the area of leadership? I know you're very curious and want to learn from other walks of life. What are the topics are you looking at or books that you're reading at the moment?
1: Right. Yes, there's a good question. If, if you're interested in flow, Stephen Kotler um, playing with fire. And that's a lot around certainly the kinds of um, the innovations of people like Google, um, special forces in understanding how do individuals get into flow? I think there's nine chemicals within our brains that have to line up to get to get to that flow moment. But also, how do you get teams to operate in flow? The other book I can't recommend highly enough is The Untethered Soul by a guy called Michael Singer. That really, if people are interested in this, being able to untether your um, thoughts to yourself is, is an, is amazing. Um, I'm also, I was very, very much influenced by a book called Turn the Ship Around and a guy called David Marquet um, that really helped me understand this. Don't take control, give it and created intent-based leadership. And and that had a massive impact on, on me. Um, But, uh, but there's three books there, Jeremy. Um, Playing with Fire great Tethered soul and turn the ship around it. probably three key books um that that have helped me
0: and emmy's asking are there any books on negotiation that you'd recommend
1: well there's 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 a good one um called don't split the difference and it's an american he was the he was the fbi lead negotiator um and it's a book called Don't Split the Difference and 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 it's that's a really interesting one it's very american it's very fbi but some very interesting takeaways from that book called Don't Split the Difference and I think if you google that in um it will give you um yeah who, who that who that is but a very very interesting guy and you can you can get him on youtube as well and um this is old age i just wish i could remember his is it name
0: chris voss
1: yes it is jeremy yeah chris voss he's really and he's very funny as well jeremy isn't he he's very funny because what you'd say is um he would go and talk nice for about four or five hours with some really bad people in new york and generally they'd give themselves up but yeah chris boss don't split the difference we got there jeremy didn't we that's that's good around negotiation
0: excellent um and liam's asking about you've shared some brilliant insights around depression um what advice would you give to other people that are suffering with depression how best to tackle it or how did you tackle it
1: right the best advice i remember um, asking somebody that that I knew had, had suffered from depression, and, and I said, "Can you get better?" And they said, "No." That's a lie. That's a big lie, because I can tell you something now: that you can get better, and also you can get even better than better. That you can grow and understand why that you feel the way that you do so my journey into depression was through anxiety and i think my journey to anxiety was through lack of confidence they were all little stations on the tube to being clinically depressed so lack of confidence being very sensitive i think i've always been a pretty highly sensitive person there's some good about that but there's also some dangers in being highly sensitive. Anxiety. And anxiety and how that affects you. You know, an anxiety is a spectrum from it having limited effect to having a lot of effect on you. Again, your environment will affect that level of anxiety. I think I was very, very anxious for a long period of time that led eventually to being clinically depressed. I think that high level of anxiety linked to having very limited sleep, lack of sleep was was a part of that problem. I became exhausted. And also, my life became really dark. You know, I'd stopped seeking out fun and laughter. And what, what, what do I mean by that? Well, I'd stop seeking out fun and laughter. Well, fun and laughter is the counterbalance to when you're dealing with a lot of sadness, trauma, and tragedy. The big mistake I I made was that I didn't realise that. I thought I was absolutely fine soaking up all of this trauma, and I'd be okay. Well, I was a cop. I was a bit like Russell Crow in Gladiator. I was I was I was amazing. No, I wasn't. All I ever was was a human being. A human being that was capable of being very frightened, scared. All the emotions that anybody gets. And whether you're a man or a woman, of course, I think certainly, you know, at the early part of my career, being a man, this macho nonsense, that you couldn't be scared. I was scared many, many times, folks. And I've been in situations where I've been pretty terrified. So this thing about you ain't going to be scared, it isn't true. And and being honest with yourself. And, and I think what got me out of depression was eventually stop fighting myself. Because the problem, I think, started with the the, the fight with the thoughts in my head. And the recovery started with where I just said, you know what? I give up. I'm not going to fight these thoughts anymore. All I'm going to do is I'm going to live my life the best I can. I'm going to um, just relax a bit more. And if today I've had this thought, or if I've had a really crap day, well, you know what? That's okay. And that sentence of it's okay was a really, really valuable thing to say. You know what? When things aren't great, To be able to say, but it's okay. Because tomorrow might be a better day. Next month could be far better. And of course, this reminds me of what I'd say to people who thought of taking their lives. Tomorrow might be better. And you know what? It, It generally is. And next month's better. Because your journey out of all of this, it just gets better and better. You know, I couldn't talk like this, Jeremy, even 10 years ago without bursting into tears. I'd I'd, I'd be very emotional and I'd be crying my eyes out. But that just shows the journey of not only living this, but also now being able to help other people. Uh, And there there is always hope. And and, and, and you, you, you can get yourself out of this. Just don't fight yourself. Just love yourself a bit more. Don't be critical. Just just be kind.
0: Well, if you've listened through to this point, then I'm sure you've been gripped by Ash's story. Be kind. In a world of judgment, comparison, polarizing opinions and personal attacks, we need to remember that life's hard enough without turning on ourselves too. So we've got to watch that negative voice, that critical inner voice, that spiral that we can get into. Ash's leadership style is subtle, relationship-based and built for the long term. He wasn't using the power of his stripes on his arm. He generated followers who respected him because of his character. This compassionate leadership style is exactly what we need at the moment. I found his personal story incredibly compelling too. That analogy of a sensitive man being contaminated over time by the daily exposure to harrowing and stressful situations, almost like that asbestos worker, this has a cost in just the same way. And that's why we need to have the self-awareness to spot these warning signs, to spot that our diet's changing, that we're withdrawing, that we're not sleeping, that we're starting to get short-tempered, that we're not eating properly. Because these warning signs are so important that we need to proactively build coping mechanisms into our day. Taking a break, getting into nature, building in times with our friends so that we can keep our perspective and have fun. That's the antidote, as Ash said, to these stressful moments. For anyone living a life of service, we need to ensure that we've got our own mindset and energy levels right first. Otherwise, we're completely useless to everyone else that we're trying to help. So whether we're a husband, a friend, a boss or a parent, we've got to make sure that our well-being and our mindset is paramount in our plans, because it's only at that point when we're fully charged that we've got the energy to be able to support all those people around us. So these are great reminders. And I really hope that you found the episode helpful. And if you have, then please do share it. Maybe there's a friend or even a police officer that you know that might relate to this. And if we can help one person that's going through a dark period at the moment to see a slightly brighter future from listening to it, then that would be incredible. So please do share it and keep in touch. And if there's any way that I can help, just send a message through to hello at And remember, if you'd like to join our Members Club, the next event is in November. We're gonna be tackling leading through uncertainty, which is so topical at the moment. So we're gonna have some great debate and discussion. So just head over to sportingedge.com, look for the membership area. And then when you set up your personal account, use the code podcast100 in the discount code box that will kick out the credit card and you'll get a free month's access. And it'll be brilliant to see you on the inside of that Members Club you'll see all of our best content. So I hope you have a great day. Keep smiling and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening
1: to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. Connect with Jeremy's
0: LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.